welcome once again to The Agent's Angle, the premier podcast bringing you the latest from the football agent industry with me, Peter Paleologos, and me, Jonathan Booker. In this episode, we will be talking about the future of the football agents industry, where it's gone wrong, and what the path ahead looks like. Plus, we have a guest with us who I hope you won't mind me saying is a stalwart of the agents industry. In addition to that, we also be looking at a couple of news items and other topics that are pretty current in the agent space, including the recent CAS hearing between Profar and FIFA. We will also look at release clauses and the implication for players, clubs, agents, all that to come in this episode of The Agents Angle. Good to see you, Jonathan. It's been a seminal week in the agent space and particularly with the CAS hearing that we got the result this week. Absolutely, Peter. It's such an important week for the agents industry. But with all that aside, apart from an apology I need to make from last week's episode where I signed off like a 1970s DJ, I'll promise to try and not let it happen again or even think to refer to the listeners as pot pickers. I think we're all human. We're all learning. We're all getting more experience. What I will say today, I'm quite excited. We've got a very established agent coming on the show or the podcast a bit later. But also, we're talking about release clauses, which fascinate a lot of fans, agents, clubs. Very fascinating space. So I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, as you said, Peter, a lot to talk about and a lot to cover. So rather than us babble on about the weather and the price of fish, I, th- I think we'll get straight into it. Yes, yeah, so let's get straight into the cast ruling this yeah. week. Basically, Profa v FIFA, a decision was handed down. Yeah, there's no better place to start on the news and trends articles than this story with Cass and the ruling over the FFAR, which we're recording on the Thursday, I believe. It dropped on either the Monday or the Tuesday this week. And it came as a bit of a surprise because last week from various sources that I'd spoken to, we were expecting a further delay. And that was as late as Thursday, Friday last week. And then Monday, Tuesday this week, we get that decision. So some questions may well be asked there, but we won't go into that at this time. Now, our original plan was to do an extra podcast when this decision dropped, covering just that story. But there were so many matters conspired against us out of our control and we were unable to do so. So that's unfortunate. And not least, this was that we recognise a lot of the top legal minds in football, as far as we're concerned, are busy with matters relating to the transfer window and other things. And so we didn't do this. Our intention was to get somebody totally independent of the show to look at the ruling and break it down and explain it further. But as the more legally minded and ultimately legally qualified one amongst us, can you just give us a brief synopsis of the ruling? I actually have invited a couple of um, independent lawyers to come on board and they will come probably in the next week. But for me, the CAS ruling decided that the FFAR, the FIFA Football Agents Regulations, do not violate Swiss law, EU law, European Union law. The national laws or regulatory rules, in particular France, Italy, and also mention of the MLS or the USA. The decision is based on that FIFA's got legitimate objectives. Legality, validity, and proportionality, three concepts. So the legal, the valid, that the regulations are valid, and they're proportionate, which is a very important word, especially Cass uses that word or that concept or that principle quite a bit. 
So the whole Profa case, which was based on challenging the commission caps, privacy, also the freedom to contract, all of that was not accepted by the CAS. And it was FIFA who won this first case. But it's interesting to see what happens next. I will say the last word, this is not the last word. Well, we, there hope are, not. Um, we definitely hope not it's the last word. No, there are cases at the European Court of Justice, a referral has been made. I know in England where you're based, Jonathan, there's the Rule K arbitration, which will be a similar type arbitration. Remember, CAS is the Court of Arbitration, so there were three arbitrators there. I think it's watch this space, and we will watch this space. As I mentioned, we will have some independent speakers. But ultimately, CAS found that these regulations were legitimate and were proportionate. So their objectives of FIFA with these regs to regulate the agents, to protect transfers, to protect minors, all those objectives which we discussed, they were their legitimate objectives. And that's sort of where the, the case basically stood. Yeah, legitimate objectives in the eyes of that case and the hearing and the panel and so on and so forth. But as someone who sat through that hearing, well, I would say 95% of it, and I'm still mindful not to contravene my NDA, which is still in force, or are the confidentiality elements? Well, not just yet. But yes, I was surprised at the result. I didn't expect Profa to win, but I expected them to come away with something on certain areas of the challenge on the basis of, shall I say, pure common sense and fairness. Maybe this is my fault as a non-legal person to assess on the practicalities and the real world aspects of what I saw and heard at CAS rather than the legal points that the CAS panel were seemingly looking for with this ruling. I said on a previous pod about accepting the decision, and I do accept the decision, but do I accept the process that I observed, the considerations that were made and the underlying factors? I'm not so sure. I think there is more to look at there, which seemingly leaves quite a lot of people asking questions of CAS and FIFA on such matters. But that's something for another day. So we see how it goes forward. And as you said, this isn't over. And I would hasten to add, as far as some of the, what I would call the big guns in the agent's world, they haven't even, well, they've fired a shot, but they haven't started their proceedings yet. Or if they have started their proceedings, and we know there are quite a few proceedings on foot, ultimately these proceedings will end up in courts of justice, the European Court of Justice being the main one, but also I'm quite interested in what happens in England because Premier League is there, Rule K arbitrations, there's a big history of that, and all bigger agencies are involved in that. So it's going to be very interesting, those challenges where they land. But right now, I think we should read a little bit of the outcome in, in terms of a statement from Profa and also a statement yeah. from FIFA, how they found both the decision. I'm happy for you to go and read the Profa statement. Yeah, I've got the Profa statement here, which I'll read out on the CAS ruling, which was posted on the 24th of July, uh, 2023. And this is from Paddy Dominguez, the Profa president. And I'll read it in full. Dear members, Profa has today been informed by the Court of Arbitration for Sport, CAS, that its case against the proposed FIFA agent regulations set to commence on October the 1st, 2023, has been unsuccessful. Profa, its members and affiliates are extremely disappointed by this ruling and the effect it will have on thousands of agents' livelihoods and families around the world. Profa will carefully examine the ruling before deciding the next steps and will continue to support any and all litigation against these regulations, specifically the introduction of a commission cap. 
Paddy Dominguez, Pro for Presidents. That profile media release or statement was from the Instagram page of Profa. So just confirming that. I will read the FIFA statement now, and that's come, or part of the FIFA statement is quite long, and we want to get on with the podcast a little bit. It basically comes from the FIFA.com website. And the statement reads, FIFA welcomes today's ruling by the Court of Arbitration of Sport, also known as CAS, that fully confirms the legality, validity, and proportionality of the FIFA Football Agent Regulations, also known as FFAR. I'll move on a little bit. The ward presents, that is the CAS award, represents the first in-depth legal assessment of the legality of the FFAR by an independent panel of renowned experts. The introduction of the FFAR follows a robust consultation period involving multiple stakeholders. The ward confirms FIFA position that the FFAR are a reasonable and proportionate regulatory measure that help to resolve systemic failures in the player transfer system. FIFA particularly notes that the award confirms its regulatory authority to regulate the activity of football agents in the transfer system, as well as the validity of key provisions of the FFAR. I won't continue with that statement, but basically it also notes some of those key provisions, being the cap, being prohibition of multiple representation in some instances, and also I would say the role of FIFA as the regulator of the agents in relation to international deals or deals of an international dimension. So basically, that is the FIFA statement. I think, as we've stressed all along, even though we have differences of opinion on the FFAR and the way things have been done and who's doing what and saying what, I think that's, that's a true representation of the football world as a whole on this subject. We're very hopeful that Paddy will come on the podcast in the not-so-distant future. But obviously, he has other matters to consider at this time, not least if there's some avenue to lodge some form of appeal, as well as to contend with what I would say are seemingly false allegations that are doing the rounds from some quarters. But also, the invitation is also there for FIFA to come on the show, not just to discuss FFAR, but all of agent-related matters. We've stressed the importance of CPD and agent education and how good that is for the industry if implemented in the right way. But only time will tell if they take up those invitations and stay true to the sentiments of transparency. And just, I know we've quoted enough, but I'd just like to use the words of Gianni Infantino on this subject and this matter of engagement and working together. And he said this, and it is published on the FIFA website. There is no need to shy away from differing views. On the contrary, we all benefit from the creativity and innovation that arise from debate, leading to new and better ways of running the game for everyone. And I think that's quite apt. There's a lot of acrimony flying around. There's a lot of questions over engagement. And I'd love to see it actually prove true that those words are genuine. And FIFA are willing to engage. And the invitation is there, FIFA. We we want to spread the word about what is going on in the agents industry, the agents world, and how it affects a broad, broad variety of people across football. So, Peter. I will say this. Go on. Yes, I will say this, Jonathan. Uh, there's a lot of media on this case. I've seen differing opinion pieces, differing analysis, but it's not just in Europe, but all around the world, the US, a lot of the papers or websites have picked it up there. 
Australia, Asia, Africa. So it's had a worldwide impact. The good thing about this case, take away the outcome for Profa, is Profa also puts his message across what he was trying to do, what their, their aims were in terms of protecting a lot of the smaller agents and a lot of agents in different smaller markets and countries. Yeah, definitely. But enough on FFAR. It's going to come back to haunt us. We know that. We know we're going to be covering it in future episodes. We, it's almost like we can't avoid it. So let's change the subject just a little bit and go on to a, an article that you picked up in the media recently. Yes, I want to get into release clauses. Release clauses in player contracts that are negotiated by agents. The article was entitled, and I'll read it all out, Holland, Benzema, and the players with release clauses in their contracts by Carlo Gaganesi, and it was on a website called Football Transfers. This article fascinated me because... As a football lawyer and as an agent, release clause is a very important part of the negotiation and contract. And in this article, the journalist mentions Cristiano Ronaldo and Harry Kane, both who never had any release clauses in their contracts. So obviously, when when a club doesn't have a sorry, a player doesn't have a release clause, a club can determine the price. But basically, with a, a release clause, it allows a player to leave a club if another club is interested and either meets the price, the timing's right, so there's always a, a date with a release clause, or there is another event. For instance, a player hasn't played Champions League for two years with that club, and there's a clause in the which is all set out that if they don't get an opportunity, it's activated, and from there someone can come in and purchase the player. And it's interesting with this article, I don't know where the information's come from, but it lists players with release clause and, and the amounts so, for instance, Holland, $200 million, and that's going to be executed in 2024. So a club like Real Madrid may be interested. And we've got other players like Vinicius Jr., Real Madrid, $1 billion. Arlo de Baglia, Roma, a $20 million release clause for Serie A clubs and $12 million for non-Serie A clubs. So very interesting. And we even got Robert Lewandowski from Barcelona for $500 million. So very interesting article. And I think with release clauses, it's a special category. And I know a lot of our listeners will be very interested in how release clauses work, including buyout clauses and other type of release clauses, as well as bonuses. And we may need to go to an episode. But another interesting article, which I want to pivot to very briefly, is one that Damien Duff, who's the coach of the League of Ireland team, Shelbourne, he also mentioned release clauses in his league, and he mentions, it's an article from May of 2023 by Ron and Calvet, where Damien Duff says, agents negotiating release clause can go and do one. Must be an Irish saying, but I sort of get the drift of what he's saying. No, and he's I, saying as a I've coach, used that saying quite a lot in the past. Uh, a lot of people can go and do one on, on one occasion or another. It's well-versed across, uh, obviously, Ireland and the UK, but hasn't quite reached down under. It hasn't reached down under, but I'll be brief on this one. This is an interesting one. This is a coaching perspective where Damien Duff, when he negotiates contracts, obviously, for Shelbourne, a lot of agents come to him and say we want a very low ball release clause for young talented Irish players whose pathways, as is mentioned in this article, is to get to the UK or Scandinavia. So they want a 20, 30 million euro type clause. And Damien Duff is of the view that that's way too low. And the way he deals with it is he actually talks to the player and says, we'll release you if a good club comes, but we're not going to put this clause because it's not fair on the club. You will get your money. You will get a good contract he mentions with the club, but with no clause in it. 
So it seems like Damien Duff is probably against release calls, at least in the Irish experience, because agents want players to have very low release clauses. Now, I know that release clauses or a type of release clause, the buyer clause has been very popular in Spain. And as I said, we're going to do a special segment on that. But Jonathan, in terms of England and the Premier League and the Championship where you're based, I know five, 10 years ago, there wasn't many of these release clauses or transfer clauses, but now it seems like it's part and parcel of the negotiation for agents in the Premier League, in the Championship. Have you got any thoughts on that or any experiences or any anecdotes you can tell us about release clauses yeah, being it, used in that leagues? I, I'm a big fan of release clauses if they're used in the right way. I draw a lot of scepticism over those figures that are in the article because unless they've actually come from the player or the club or somebody has seen the contract by whatever source, I think there's so many variables and variations that can be in there. But the reason why I'm a fan of release clauses, if they're done in the right way and they're reasonable, is that it gives an element of certainty. Now, you can vary the release clauses. You get the apt lawyers in there that if you can increase the release clause going forward, if the player is successful in the contract, there's nothing stopping that in that contract. So if the player is successful, it will ultimately, in most cases, lead to the club being successful. And if they are, the release clause is increased. So the club benefits as well. I think it gives everybody some certainty. Now, anecdotally, and I'm not doubting Damien Duff's take on this here, but interesting take. I've come across managers who aren't a fan of release clauses solely for shall I say, their own controlling interest. I, I had a negotiation, and this, was, this wasn't Premier League, this wasn't Championship, this was League One, League Two. And I thought that a release clause at that level, if the club can put a figure on it, on day one it might be quite exaggerated to what the player's worth at that time. So he might be worth, I don't know, £50,000 at that time, and in the future they might think he's worth £150,000. So they can put the release clause at £150,000. I've come across managers who won't put release clauses in there. And the excuse I heard, which was rather laughable from one, is that it's an example of the player not backing himself. Well, who's going to want to release a player from their contract through paying a release clause for a player that isn't performing and not backing himself? I think it gives the club certainty to an extent and it's down to the clubs to do it responsibly. And this is where some clubs fall short and granted they haven't got the directors of football, the chief execs that might be a bit more astute on that. But I think it benefits all involved with a bit of certainty and it makes life very, very difficult if you've got a player who's got 18 months left on their contract and hasn't got a release clause and is playing well, well, what are you left to for the club in that circumstance? Are they going to be forced to get a reduced transfer fee in the future? Is the player going to, as the term is used, run down their contract and the club get nothing in some cases? So playing devil's advocate, I'm a fan of release clauses. I think it benefits all involved if they are used in the right way. But figures in the media, I would always take with a pinch of salt because you don't know all the details of that release clause. Oh, we'll just find oh, We're talking about release clauses. Two interesting type of release clauses. The relegation release clause, which 
probably would be in every Premier League contract because when you're relegated to the championship, even though you get the parachute payments, a lot of clubs do not want expensive players or too many expensive players on their books. So there's an opportunity there to offload at a certain price or uh, a certain uh, uh, something that happens at but events. Then, but then again, the Peter, then again on that subject, if a club is relying on release clauses, surely they would be posi- better positioned like they are with promotion clauses to make sure some, and I know a lot of the top, top level players won't transfer to a club if there are relegation clauses in there, that their salary is reduced. Because even if there is a release clause that effectively allows another club to compensate that club for the compensation, because technically it's a transfer, it's just got a fixed price. How many clubs are going to want a player on a release clause that was adjudged when they were in Tier 1 league from a club who's then relegated to Tier 2, they're not going to meet that original release clause. And that's why it gets very complicated and people really need to dig into the details behind the scene. And I think it it comes to the responsibility of clubs. But it does give an element of certainty. Also, agents need to be a little bit creative here, Jonathan, where on contingent events... They need to put in the clause if certain things have a relegation, promotion, winning a championship or not qualifying for the Champions League, as I mentioned earlier, or a UEFA competition and the player's ambitious and wants to move on. Those items are listed or those events, I should say, are listed in the clause. One interesting, and I know in Australia, release clauses are becoming, especially for young tons of players, just like Ireland, are becoming much more popular. But there is one clause that is also like a release clause is for the experienced players, the goodwill release clause. And I'll be just brief here is when a player's played five years, maybe got a a six or seven year or another year, but then a club from Asia are looking for an experienced player, a lot more money could be, especially Australian players going to India or going to Japan or Korea. There is that sort of goodwill where it's a low a low amount for the release clause if an interest comes from a club which will pay more salary and opportunity for the player because the player's been loyal. And that's for more experienced players. But we can talk about release clauses this whole... Ultimately, it might be a player who was developed at that club. That was their junior club. They've got that connection. I I think that's a nice term because we don't see the loyalty across football. You don't get your one-club players anymore. They are incredibly rare. Uh, I think the term would be rarer than rocking horse poo, but... You don't get that. And when it comes to release clauses, you say about creativity, and I think it's about being creative in the right ways for agents and aligning themselves with the specialist lawyers to make sure those clauses work. And they work together, and that's an agent and a lawyer working hand in hand. That's a good point. And both being agent, lawyer, you're right, the combination brings out a better outcome, especially for those complicated clauses. Now, we've got a guest coming, so we'll move on. But we will go back into release clauses and buyer clause, which is the Spanish one, and some other bonuses in a future episode where I think we'll bring some um, uh, specialists in to really define how it works. And not just that what they are, because we can all explain what they are, but how to negotiate them. And I think where our listeners will be very interested in that. And one final point about the release clauses the transfer windows are integral to those clauses. So in terms of drafting the release clause, you've got to have which transfer window or time frame they're applicable to. So that's part of the operation. So to be released, you've got to be released during transfer window and you're under contract. So that's that final point. 
Absolutely. At this point, I'd like to introduce our guest today. And as I said at the start, I hope he doesn't mind me saying, but he is a stalwart of the agents industry. A recognised name. He doesn't really need too much of an introduction to anyone in the agents world. He's a former professional footballer with the likes of Birmingham City, Leicester City, Fulham and others. A respected coach and a coach educator, a manager, a former club owner and director, and of course, an agent. Pretty much every role in the business side of football. And I'm sure along the way at some clubs, he's been tasked with washing kits and making a tray of teas at one time or another. He was a founder of Key Sports Management, who became a leading light in the agency world in Europe and the UK, noted for their founding principles of putting the player first, that inspired some agents to follow suit. After a stint in club ownership and directorship, he currently is director of GS Magna, a global consultancy to the football industry, and 366, a sports management group in not just football, but also other sports for athlete representation. And if that wasn't enough, and I'm tired just reading it, he continues to manage an active role in football coaching, currently as the head coach of England Power Chair National Football Team. You don't slow down, Colin, do you? No. <laughs> no. Now, Colin and I first met what must be 10 years ago, and the first meeting, shall we say, were interesting. Amicable, but interesting. I was the newly appointed General Secretary of the AFA, the Association of Football Agents, and I think it's safe to say that Colin wasn't a fan of the AFA as an organisation. And from my viewpoint, despite those challenging first meetings, I've grown to recognise Colin as a person who cares about the football agents industry, its standards, and also those affected by it, not least the players. Safe to say Colin wears his heart on his sleeve and isn't scared to tell it how it is. I think that's fair to say, isn't it, Colin? Yeah, yeah, it's, um, that's a fair summing up, Jonathan, absolutely. <laughs> Welcome absolutely. to the show and, and thanks very much for agreeing to be a guest on the podcast. Welcome, Colin. First thing we want to do, Colin, before we get into the nitty gritty of things, is wind back the clock a little bit because you've got a lot of experience and ask yeah. how first you got involved in the sports agency world, in particular the motivations for getting into the agency industry. <laughs> I didn't have any. As a player, I didn't have an agent. And as a player, I didn't like agent. But I was working for my own sort of consultancy business at the time for, for Lotto, the sports manufacturer, and also James Gilbert, the rugby ball uh, manufacturer. And they were looking to get into football. Uh, I went to have a meeting with the Welsh FA about trying to pinch their ball contract. And uh, the guy, managing director of uh, the Welsh FA at the time, said, you're in the wrong industry. How do you fancy getting into the agency world? I said, no, not really. I went, um, but I had a look at it, followed up um, his advice and went for a meeting in uh, in Washington in Georgetown with uh, Advantage International, uh, which is a big American group at the time, mainly focusing in American sports and tennis and basketball, and got to understand that there might be a different way to do this. There might be more of a professional way to do this, and there might be a way where we could put the, the, uh, the players first, the money second. And so I decided um, that I would take up the role and their offer of a role to become uh, their head of football. And, uh, and that was in, uh, God, that would be 96, 96, 97. So a fair few years ago. Um, so that's how it all, it all started. And I, I enjoyed my time at Advantage. But even then, 
pretty much got the understanding that although they're they're all very well-meaning people, uh, the Americans didn't really understand our sport overly well and didn't really understand the complications that um, football in Europe in particular threw up at that time. But I really enjoyed and was really grateful, grateful to Clifford Bloxham at the time who gave me the chance. And, uh, you know, that was my first step on the uh, on the agency ladder. In terms of key sports, which were a well-renowned, have been yeah. a well-renowned agency in England and also yeah. through Europe, setting up key sports and the ethos behind it. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what well, was the offering? First, yeah. yeah. Uh, firstly, I left um, Advantage to join 19, 19, which is Simon Fuller's company at the time, and they managed the Spice Girls and, and were mainly a music business, but their main client was Steve McManaman. And uh, I was helping them to try and play Steve McManaman. So when I joined my 19, that became my, my primary role. And I did that sort of, uh, that was the first uh, big deal that I did for them. So we, we played Steve McManaman at Real Madrid and we had a lot of success. We bought Hidetoshi and Nakata into Serie A, did Marco Matarazzi. So I did some really big things for 19. And uh, that's where I met my to-be uh, business partner, John Calhoun. We both played. Uh, the game we played against each other I scored he didn't um, going uh, back to when we were playing I think I was at Leicester he was at Millwall and then uh, we met at 19 and we were cheeky enough to ask for some equity in Simon Fuller's business but he decided that that was uh, beyond the pale but he, because we'd been pretty successful for, for him he, he he basically paid our bonds to FIFA then and allowed us to set up key sports and uh, that's when John and I started in 99 and John and I both former players I think we think about the player first and foremost, and then we put the ethos together uh, for the business and, and built on our contact base. And uh, and we grew Key Sports to be, I think, probably the most one of the most reputable companies in the world. But also, you know, one of, at that time, also one of the the more successful as well. In terms of Key Sports, you were there for quite a long period of time. Yeah. If you reflect on the agent industry from the time you started till. Towards you finish with say key sports. Yeah. How do you see it evolve? How do you see the professionalism? How do you see the negotiation? How do you see the player industry? So I want to get a little bit of context of how it sort of moved along during you mentioned 1999 or yeah. the way to when you sort of moved out of the industry. Do you see major trends or major changes? Yeah, I do. I do. And it's a roller coaster. You hope at one stage things are becoming um, more disciplined, more organized, more professional, maybe even more transparent and then you understand that when the vast amount of money comes into the sport that you're talking about now then then obviously that that attracts all kinds of um, questionable practice and also I think it, it puts into it puts into perspective whether people are actually thinking about their clients or thinking about their bank balance and there became a many many opportunities we had the first change in regulations I think David Lambert at the FA was um, central to trying to change the agent regulations in the UK in particular. And, and I sat on the panel there and I thought that was an interesting experience with some of the people I was sitting with. And then the AFA looked at trying to uh, get, you know, look at whether they could make a difference. And then, of course, now when you change the regulations to the point where you've only just got to put up £500 to become an agent and you are opening it up to all kinds of people who are looking at um, trying to get rich quick. And uh, I watched the, the business become one of... Um, in some cases, or a lot of cases, where we like to think where it was about the client and uh, and helping the client fulfil his potential, it became very transactional. It was all about the next deal. 
and the next deal and making that next deal work because the kind of money that was related to that next deal was life-changing for the agent, life-changing for the player, and and a lot in a lot of cases, life-changing for parents as well. And um, that was the biggest concern for me was that if you had a decent 15-year-old son, you could retire from your job and you don't really need to worry about money for a long time. I just thought that we'd got the whole thing completely the, the wrong way around. And any time we looked to introduce any legislation, it was just an opportunity for intelligent, clever people to circumvent legislation and to find ways around it. And that's forever thus. And I think we're just about to face the same wave of uh, problems again, uh, because this hasn't been fought through. This has all been thought through from a group of people who think that agents are getting too wealthy. How do we stop it? And they're not actually thinking on uh, how do we make this industry more professional and uh, more acceptable. I want to talk a little bit about your negotiation style and the way you approach clubs in terms of dealing with their requirements and their expectations. Did you have a certain style? You mentioned your ethos. I'm fascinated to hear about you're in the Premier League, in the Championship. There's a lot of money, a lot of a new investment. Um, It's changed the last two decades. So within that context, I just want to know how you sort of changed, what was your strategy negotiating with clubs, but also managing player expectations because they've seen the inflated market, inflated wages? Yeah, I think that's a a great question. Uh, Fortunately, coming from the industry, I think that's a that's a huge advantage. If I if I'm honest, because you you're ex, you're in the village, you're not. Once you're in the village, you stay in the village. You're not on the outside looking in. The only thing you can do then is burn relationships through bad practice and through laziness. Um, to enhance relationships, you've always got to be prepared to meet people, to go out, and meet people, meet clubs, meet uh, heads of recruitment, meet uh, technical directors. Now, meet um, CEOs, and you've got to understand what what they're looking for and what they're about, the ethos of their clubs, uh, what makes them different to other clubs, understanding what kind of player would suit them and their coaching staff and their coaches. So you, you have to understand the industry inside out. So it's no good phoning up Liverpool and offering them a seven-foot-two centre-half who can't play. You've got to understand the ethos of the football clubs and you build it and cater it accordingly. And therefore, but also in every time that you pick the phone up to people and they want to take your calls because you've got good information for them also, because that you are, you're on the football grapevine and it's a good way of them picking up good industry knowledge for themselves, for their jobs, but also for them and their clubs. So that's one part of it. And then with regards to the, the players themselves, you just basically promise those parents that you're going to be there for them for the rest of their career when they get to 35. If they look back and think that they could have done better, then I failed at my job. If they feel like that's as good as they could do with the with the potential and the talent they've been given, then we've done our jobs. And but nobody looks at that anymore. Everybody looks at what's the next deal? How do I get the next million into my bank account? How do I get my next million offshore? How do I make my next million disappear? You know that's the way people are thinking now. Um, but uh, the ethos was all around helping the players fulfil their potentials, identifying the best young talent, and being there for them throughout their careers. What about? Uh- We've seen the Premier League a lot of international players come the last 20 yeah. years, two, three decades. Yeah. Also agents from outside of England pushing their players. How did you deal with that sort of international focus and dealing with international players who might have a different mindset to the British mindset, but also the expectation of a lot of agents from outside of England who have a different way of doing things and who might have contacted you to knowing that you've got a good array of contacts 
to get some of those players in. Did you have a strategy or an approach in dealing yeah, with that? Yeah, the, 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 we would call that the brokering part of our business with, with relation to agents, agents overseas, clubs overseas, clubs in this country that want to sell players out. Yeah, we basically, again, transparency and fairness, making sure up front that you know what part of the deal you're working on and what the rewards are. So making that clear at the start. But being open and honest with them, don't lead anybody along the garden path. Be open and honest. This is an opportunity. They really like him. They don't. But you've got to be prepared to travel and go and meet those people in their own countries. And you've got to be prepared to go and see the players that they're talking about as well personally. I remember only, the only time I really got into trouble in my business, I had a brilliant relationship with the recently departed Steve Rowley. He was probably the best scout that I ever saw work at Arsenal. And I sent him to watch a player in Norway that I hadn't actually seen. And he said to me, you haven't seen this player, had you? And I said, no, Steve, I've got him well recommended. Never do that to me again. And I didn't. But Steve would go anywhere in the world if I'd seen the player. He'd go Argentina, he'd go Australia, he'd go wherever it was. Because you trust, and that's the trust that you build up. If you don't let these people down, if you do recommend high quality, they are going to believe in you and trust you. You come out an extension of their scouting group because they believe and have that trust in you. So... You've got to create that. You can't do this from a, an office. You can't do this from your bedroom. You, If you haven't got those relationships, then you really are only half doing the job. So understanding the way different countries work is paramount, really. You know, I remember when I was I was doing McManaman way back, I'm not going to get in trouble now, but it was obvious to me that there was an honesty in the dishonesty in some countries, that they didn't pretend that they weren't something that they weren't. You know, that that technical director is expecting this that owner is expecting this whether you did it or not it doesn't matter but there's an honesty in their dishonesty the thing that really drove me mad in our own country is we pretended to be whiter than white and holier than now and we were probably the dirtiest man in the world but because we didn't have that honesty you know it's your decision at the end of the day there's so many opportunities to make money the wrong way in this business it's your call it's it's based around your moral fiber and what you believe to be right and wrong and i've always been on the other side and been pretty vociferous about that and and caused my own trouble because of it and i'm not a wealthy guy um not certainly now not having bought a football club i'm not a wealthy guy <laughs> um and so it's just that moral compass you know if you really want to make a deal work now and you know there's a certain technical director or there's a certain person at a football club that doesn't really care about the quality of the player, just cares about the, the the bank balance he has, then you can make a deal work. I can't go there and I won't go there. I'll, you know, If I'm going to do a deal with someone, I need to know that that player is going to be of value to the football club and is going to enhance my own personal reputation going forward. And I'm going to be the one person that they want to call next time when they're looking for a position to be filled within their football club. And that's the way I've always approached it. But the thing that really annoys me the most, and Jonathan will back this up because we've had many of these discuss discussions, is that when people want to sit and change the, the world and change regulation and, and they promote themselves, the group of Napoleons, now they're all kings and running the sport, what is their motivation? And that's the biggest question that I can answer quite easily, although that no one will like the answer, but it's not for the good of the sport. We've definitely had those conversations going back many years, Colin. You know, but nothing yeah. will change for me. And people can't understand, well, why won't you join us? Well, because I don't basically respect you for what you are and what you do. And, well, you'll always be an outsider. Well, I'd rather be an outsider and keep my honesty and keep my and keep my integrity. I'd, I'd always rather do that. If we don't enhance our sport 
and we and we don't actually enhance the lives of the people we're representing. What's the point? And this is the basis of what I built. The ethos of key sports was that. And the point is that people want to deal with us because of that. The good people want to deal with us. So, you know, the light side works with the light side and the dark side works with the dark side. The horrible part is when one of them crosses over to the other side of each. And, you know, I've always tried to avoid that. Yeah. Colin, I might regret asking this question. <laughs> you know what's coming. Yeah. If you could describe the football agents industry in one word, thinking about the good and the bad of it, what would it be? Now I would say entitled, which is so far down the scale now. They believe that they're entitled. And this is the thing that's driven the governing bodies crazy. And so firstly, obviously, I felt it was just wrong. But now I just feel it's entitled. It beggars belief. We've created this uh, environment now. And unfortunately, we've got a group of people in uh, in Switzerland now decided enough is enough. But have they really? Because all they're doing now is creating opportunities for good, bright people to collaborate, to work, to make things sure things that, you know, we're probably going to drive third party ownership back to the top of the agenda again now, but it will be under the table, third party ownership. There'll be all sorts of things going on when really the, the key to all of this, the solution is back to one word again, Jonathan, is transparency. That's the solution. And then allowing good people within the industry that basically know the industry to be able to police the industry, but all around transparency, transparency to the public. Why should it be, a, why should a transfer fee be undisclosed? The one thing the American sports have got over us is that there is no hidden finances in any deal. In the NBA, in the NFL, in Major League Baseball, everybody knows what everybody's salary is. They know the, the pitfalls in that because some of their packages are not guaranteed. And so basically we all know, what, does, what do add-ons mean? You know, what are the add-ons? What is the percentage of the fee that the agent is going to receive? What is the sell-on position for the club? Why have they done that? Why have they done this? And then when you are as transparent as that, then it's quite obvious where the questionable ones need to be looked into and getting good people around the industry that understand what we're looking for, quite easily we can identify that one just doesn't smell right. Okay, let's have a good look at it. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting take. I certainly didn't expect you to come up with the word entitled, but it, thinking about it, it's very, very apt. Very apt. And the first and what, question now most agents ask, what's it what's in it for me? Right. And it's not even it's not even embarrassed question. It's so ballsy. It's like entitled. Right. I've bought you this. What's in it for me? Let's not worry about I'll worry about my client second. And so the art of negotiation uh is almost out the window. If you, you're going to recruit a top 15-year-old as about as about to become 16, so you can sign him. And the first thing you say is um how much you got left on your mortgage to the family? Don't worry about that. When are they actually going to think about their boy's career and mm. whether this is the right move? And this is not, I'm not talking about overseas. I'm, I, when Dan Ashworth was technical director, you know this, Jonathan, I went to see Dan and Dan knew this to be a major problem for England, that top young players were getting too much too soon and ultimately weren't fulfilling their potential. Dads were coming back from probably strange families, et cetera, et cetera. And all of a sudden their lad was going to be a player and all he's back on the scene because it's time to get paid. And we've had this issue now for a long, 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 long time, but we haven't faced up to it. 
And then we're now trying to arrest the problems that we've created for ourselves. Yeah. These things have, I've been saying, Jonathan, you know, for over 10 years, honestly, the money is absolutely scarily ridiculous. And now you've got all the Saudi Arabian money coming into the game as well. And it's going to get worse. And FIFA think that they've come up with some good ideas. They're locking the door after the horse has bolted, unfortunately. I think that's a line that a lot of us have used. I think both Peter and I have used that with regards to regulation over the last couple of years, being involved with the FFAR and that. If I can just bring you back a bit, and we we spoke about, obviously, about key. But in the last episode, Peter and I spoke about mergers and acquisitions within the agency industry, and you touched on it slightly with the larger agencies. There's been a trend in recent years for football agencies to merge, most notably CAA. More recently, we spoke about it on the last episode, Rock Nation expanding into Brazil. They're a relatively new player to the scene. But the acquisition of Key by Vassaman was probably one of the first of note that was public knowledge in the football agency world. I believe I'm correct in saying that was after your time at Key that that happened. Yeah, it was, yeah. yeah. But in yeah, terms of yeah. agency mergers and takeovers, do you think we're going to see more of these in the future? And what impact do you think it's going to have on football agents industry and also the other participants, such as players, clubs, coaches and the authorities? I think, yeah, I think you are. There's going to be more because basically football is, is a recession-proof business. And I think there's more to come, obviously, with technological developments, uh, metaverse, et cetera, et cetera. There's going to be more revenue coming into the game for the client, for the players. And I think so. The big agencies are looking now at basically buying money. If you know, if they work on multiples, so if their agency can support a multiple of 10 times uh, profits, then they're bringing in a million a year from an agency profit. They're buying, they're actually buying 10 million pounds. So it's not rocket science. I don't know how they go about doing their due diligence when you're looking to acquire a lot of agencies, you know, and whether it actually bothers them at all. But unfortunately, even in the big, big, big companies, the agencies still work as individuals and even and at best in silos. So they don't have an overarching view to the way the business should be practiced because they have no idea how the industry works anyway. So everybody carries on in their own merry way and whether all of the revenue from a deal goes into that agency or not, they'll never know because it doesn't matter basically who they've acquired. People are going to be what they are and and work how they are. So I'm going to see more because you're acquiring money and you're building businesses that 100 million, 200 million, billion pound businesses. And I can understand that. But whether they actually understand the industry and what goes on on a daily basis, um, I doubt very, very much. And with that, we're going to end that interview there for now. We don't want to spoil you too much at once. We'll bring you the second part of that interview with Colin Gordon next week. And on the second part of the interview, Colin will speak about his take on FFAR, the role of player associations when it comes to agents, lawyers, industry skills, and also the hardest deal he ever did on a player transfer, but also the most rewarding. And we'll bring you that next week. Peter, over to you. And that's a fascinating discussion with Colin. Some great information and stories and really anecdotes there. It's now it's time to bring this episode of Agents Angle to an end. We hope you found it interesting, if not useful. We've covered a whole gamut of interesting issues. The CAS case, PROFA v FIFA, release clauses, and our guests as well. So please don't forget to subscribe and follow the Agents Angle 
We promise to deliver some fantastic content coming up. And if there's any topics you want covered on the Agents Angle or have any specific questions, then please don't hesitate to drop me or Jonathan a line. We will do our very best to facilitate and bring those topics up or invite those speakers. Bye from me for now. Bye from me. Thanks for listening. The purpose of the Agents Angle podcast is to provide news, information and facilitate discussion on regulatory matters, policies, business trends and issues affecting football agents worldwide. The opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and should never be considered legal or professional advice. Furthermore, the views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you for listening.